0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is December 7th, 2023, and I'm joined in studio as usual by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about when the Biden administration goes marching in. And uh, our title is a reference to the fact that today the Biden administration has announced this set of new actions to, drumroll please, lower health care costs. So clearly the Biden administration has decided that continuing to pound on prescription drug prices and health care costs uh, p- pulls well, or at least works for them because, you know, they've, they've it seems like this has been one of the main areas of policy that the Biden administration has continually touted whether it was you know price capping uh, insulin or or you know having uh you know having the the government be able to negotiate with prescription drug companies on the price of drugs and things like that but this particular effort that was announced today is related to something called march in rights so why don't we explain first sort of what are march-in rights when it comes to uh, prescription drugs and other, and other uh, innovative products?
1: Right. And so you mentioned the march-in rights, and that, that's certainly the title of our piece sort of uh, recalls the saints go marching in. Right. But in this case, it's the demons that are going marching <laughs> in. So what, what President Biden released today, and I'm reading, it, I'm reading the title of this from the December 7 release, Fact Sheet. Biden-Harris administration announces new actions to lower health care and prescription drug cost by promoting competition. And he, he's got a long list of things he wants to do. We're going to focus on really just a couple of them, but he's got a long list of things he wants to do. But he starts out by saying that health care should be a right, not a privilege. Uh, but that then questions, what do you mean by right? Does that mean any health care? Does that mean if I need a Uh, If I need a root canal, should the government pay for it? If I want to have a new crown, does any kind of health care apply for that?
0: It's a great bit of rhetoric, but, you know, when you say something, that something should be a right. What you're really saying is what they're really saying is uh, you should have the right to force someone else to pay for
1: it. Right. As part of, pre- of the present Bidenomics agenda, which is interesting because he's been backing away from Bidenomics, but yep. he puts it right there in the front.
0: Well, they probably started drafting this months ago.
1: That may be. <laughs> the, Biden, the Biden-Harris administration is cracking down on priced gouging. That's what they're saying this is. So he brings up the march-in rights, and he said the march-in rights on taxpayer-funded drugs and on other innovations which specifies that prices can be a factor in considering whether a drug is accessible to the public. So what this means is the federal government spends a lot of money uh, primarily at academic institutions, medical schools, and so forth, funding basic research in a whole range of things. A lot of it has to do with prescription drugs and healthcare, but it's a whole range of areas, Department of Energy, um, Green energy stuff and so forth, they fund the federal government uh, puts a lot of money in this at academic institutions and so. Yeah,
0: and and let's drill down on that a second, because you know, just specifically how this happens is you'll have a you'll have a research professor at a university and they spend a lot of their time writing grant requests. Mm -hmm. And the grant requests are almost always to federal agencies. Yes. National institutions. Can be state and
1: other places, but generally federal agencies. That's where the that's the
0: government money. Vast majority of it. Exactly. And so, as you say, it tends to be first-line primary research, Mm -hmm. you know, testing out different molecules and things like that. And we have a legal regime called the Bayh-Dole regime. it's in 1980. Yeah, and it's named after two former U.S. senators, Birch Bayh and Bob Dole. Right. And what the Bayh-Dole legislation did was it created legal pathways so that if university research uh, turned out to lead to useful molecules that could actually be developed into drugs, it allowed the university to actually participate and, and the university professors themselves to actually participate in the ownership of those those discoveries and drugs through patent rights. Mm-hmm. So you, you literally have, if the research university is successful in developing or you know identifying molecules and things like that, they can actually benefit financially by owning the patent or by any share of the patent.
1: Prior to Baydo, there really wasn't that provision. So, if the university uh, w- was working on something developing, it had no real interest in trying to move that to market. And so, what Baydo did was create a way in which they could move it to market. Universities typically aren't very good at being able to go out and creating a new drug or a new uh, a range of different things, yeah. and and uh, getting that marketed. Go having the ability to be able to run it through the whole process, get a product developed. Then go out and put it in the market at a price that people would buy it and so
0: forth. Yeah. So, so, the but, idea of Buy Dole was to incentivize innovation. Mm-hmm. It was to, you know, it's great that you're getting federal dollars to do research, but what we, what we really want to do is develop some consumer good that comes out of
1: it. And get it out there to the consumers, yeah. which is where companies, uh, and it, it could be uh, drug manufacturers, but it also could be other companies that take uh, products that uh, get patented uh, uh, agricultural products out yeah. to the market. Yeah. You could be doing something with seeds that you're, uh, you're working on and you come up with a new kind of seed or something that might be drought resistant or something. You want to get it out to the market. You might not, not necessarily be a, company, uh, a professor who can yeah. sell seeds yeah. or mass
0: produce them. Now, a small number of researchers and research assistants can identify a useful molecule and do some tests and come up with some promising research. But it takes an enormous amount of money to refine that into a drug, to manufacture the drug, to run it through the federal approval process, the FDA, and and all that sort of thing. And so what typically happens is these promising molecules, they'll they'll enter into some sort of partnership or licensing agreement or something with a major pharmaceutical company. And so you end up with a drug that has, you know, where there's shares of people who own the patent. Um, and some of these drugs can be blockbusters. Now, as you, have, as you have written many, many times over the years, you know, the vast majority of these drugs don't turn into successful products. Right. And so you end up with something like, you know, the one blockbuster having to subsidize, you know, the, the 200 other drugs that never made a profit. Mm-hmm. You know, they never worked out or whatever. And so all the attention goes to the blockbuster, but nobody pays attention to the things where millions of dollars were invested and the drug just didn't pan out.
1: So one of the things that bayh did was it creates an intellectual property incentive. People get an economic incentive for this, mm-hmm. and they can get it to market. If, if the product is not being marketed, if nobody's really picking it up, then under bayh they could come in with what's called a march-in right, and they could take access to that
0: patent. Yeah, and they, they in your description, is the federal, the federal government. government yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: So the federal government can take access and maybe take it and send it, uh, give it to another company or something of that nature, do something with it in order to be able to get into the marketplace. Right. But it was never meant to be. It was basically the marching right was based upon nobody's using this. It is not being marketed in any effective way. What President Biden wants to do is to allow prices— to be part of the assessment as to whether or not that product that in this, in this case especially prescription drugs yeah. is being marketed out there. It's,
0: it's a very expansive interpretation of the march in rights. And you know by the way if it's not obvious by now the, the reason it's called march in right is it allows the federal government to march in. Right. And and, and, and take essentially it. seize, you know, seize the patent or at least you know have a compulsory license where they, they get to award the patent to another company to manufacture it. Now, one of the things that I am, well, well, first of all, I, let's say this, that the federal research ends up touching an awful lot of innovative products, right. not just prescription drugs, uh, you know, uh, semiconductors, you know, superconductor research on materials, energy, green
1: energy, could be a, a, just a range of different things. There, there's just tons of quantum
0: computing. I mean, an awful lot of this research, a share of the R&D came from the federal government. Mm-hmm. In almost every case, the federal share is the smallest share. Oh, yeah, yeah. Often. It, it, very often a tiny share. Not unimportant because very often, you know, as we said earlier, it, it, was, it was the seed funding. Right, that actually got a project
1: started, and this is where this is one of the misconceptions, or I'm going and I'm going to say intentional deceptions of the Biden administration. Well,
0: well this document continually refers to taxpayer-funded drugs. right? As if taxpayer dollars were a large majority or ninety percent, right. right? Exactly. Whereas it, it probably the taxpayer-funded part of it is probably like two percent or less, right? But you know, it touches a lot of stuff, and so that's why as we go through this discussion. One of the really ominous things about this is 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 if it if federal dollars just simply touched your project, and that now gives the federal government permission to come in and seize the patent, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to be very very chilling. There are going to be people who are going to say, "Well, forget it. I'm not. I'm not going to take the federal dollars," which means it might be that that promising research never takes place.
1: And I'll add into that that. Because the Biden administration expands on so many things that it wants to do to, to a much broader definition, let's say that a, a researcher was doing something that didn't go and get federal funding for this. Maybe he's just using some private funding or something, but maybe there's a research assistant who had gotten the grant somehow or the other. And was being the research assistant was there under some federal funds. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that the federal government and taxpayers are now funding the research here yeah. in a way that most of us would have thought, well, no, I mean, that's not really uh, the federal government backing this, but maybe the federal government was helping pay for a research assistant?
0: Yeah. Now, the, the, the document that was released today that we're looking at is essentially a press release from yes. the Biden administration, it's not the actual proposal. Um, because there's going to be like a 60-day comment period during right. which IPI will be commenting. And then at, at the end of that, then the – I think it's NIST. I think it's the National Institute of Standards and Technology that will actually come out with the recommendations. Um, but you can tell from this language that the Biden administration is trying to push the outside of the envelope. Yes. Where they're, because what Bidol says, what the marching right says, is that if the drug's not available to the public, right. okay –
1: it hasn't been it hasn't actually been moved right. through the marketing exactly.
0: process. Almost like a book going out of print right. or something, you know, that's no longer being made available. Well, the drugs that the Biden administration are targeting, they're available to consumers. Right. The Biden administration just thinks they're too
1: expensive. And that's why people, even people involved in the Biden the Biden legislation, even Democrats who were involved in it, has said this was never meant to be a price control issue. Right. That was not part of the yeah. debate
0: i mean you're you're redefining the word availability, or you're assuming you know words that are not there, like easy and affordable availability or you know, something like that or or they're or they're assuming that affordability is part of the idea of availability Now, my guess is all these things will be worked out in courts, you know, but here I want to point out something I want to point out how much pejorative language is in this statement i mean this this is one of the most anti-business, anti-free market kind of documents I've ever seen out of a presidential Because it's
1: one of the most anti-free market
0: administrations. I mean, in in the very second sentence, corporate special interests, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, Special interests, price gouging, taxpayer-funded drugs, as we discussed before. Uh, This document describes limited competition. It says that 25 large pharmaceutical companies control around 70% of the industry. Well, the, the general reaction that I have seen to this in the, in, the, in the media and in social media is sort of like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're saying 25 companies is not competition? Mm-hmm. How, how many companies would be competition? You know, what, do, what's the magic number? Do we have to have 50 companies? Do we have to have 75 companies? What if we had 100 companies, but you still thought the prices were too high? And I saw one very sarcastic tweet that just made me laugh out loud. Uh, where the the person was saying you know what we really need is a bunch of pharmaceutical a bunch of small home pharmaceutical companies where people are mixing up ingredients you know in their kitchen and you know making making pills out of out of cookie sheets and stuff like that's what that's what we really need the fact of the matter is is to meet the high quality manufacturing processes that are mandated by the FDA to meet the rigorous the rigorous approval process and all that sort of stuff. You got to be a pretty big company to do. There are some things that just require big companies, Uh, you know, cranking out safe and reliable prescription drugs requires big companies, not a bunch of little small mom and pop shops. Um, It reminds me very much of some of the debates that we have about there not being enough uh, competition, like in the broadband industry, you know, Mm -hmm. and people will say, okay, well, you got your choice of a phone company, cable company, or satellite company. That's not enough competition. Well, how many broadband companies do you want? I mean, how many cables do you want buried in the ground coming to your house? I mean, do, do you want 15 companies that are all digging up trenches outside your house and running cables to your house? It turns out that it's really, really difficult and really expensive to operate a broadband company. So you're not going to have hundreds of companies. You're, you're just not. It's the nature of the beast. It's the nature of the technology. So it's, it's kind of comical to say there's not enough competition because there's 25 companies that control 70 percent of the market and this pejorative language just runs all through this document um corporate profiteers mm-hmm. they're called uh corporate greed in healthcare. care they attack uh privately owned rather than publicly owned hospitals mm-hmm. as corporate profiteers here's the phrase aggressive profiteering by private equity owned medical practices i mean this is this was a document written by people who just think private ownership and the profit motive are bad things. Yes, and that they lead to higher costs for consumers. Whereas we know, just from just basic economic theory, that the opposite is actually true. It's it's private investment that does a a, a more efficient job than government does of producing a high quality product
1: at the lowest possible price. The, where the government produces. Low quality product at the highest possible price.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, when you look at consumer benefit, I mean, I have to confess, I get weary of all the drug commercials on TV. Mm -hmm. I I, I just get weary of them. It seems like every third commercial is a drug commercial. But you know what? If there were no competition, they wouldn't be spending money on advertising. Oh, that's right. The reason you advertise is that you're in competition with other companies.
1: And one more thing about the competition, when the government wants to go out and buy new fighter planes, does it have 25 companies uh, uh, managing that and coming and making bids? Or is it maybe two or three or four companies that can do that?
0: That's exactly right. Just
1: because the technology necessary, the skills and so forth, necessary to be able to produce that product, it takes a large company with a lot of
0: skills. By the way, and not many can do that. By the way, since you mentioned fighter jets, mm-hmm. um, this while this document uses healthcare and prescription drugs as its boogeyman to attack. There's a couple places in this document where it says taxpayer funded drugs and, and other, other innovations. Inventions. Yes, That's exactly right. That's exactly so right. This proposal is not limited to prescription drugs and healthcare. And just as we were talking about earlier, there's a lot of taxpayer dollars that touch all kinds of innovative products out there. And this very same principle could be used for those. It could be used for aircraft parts. It could be used, frankly, for green energy. I mean, the government's encouraging all these companies to make green energy.
1: In the piece I did for the Wall Street Journal back in April, I believe it was, it mentioned – some of the things in green energy mm-hmm. that could be involved in this. Yeah. And, and this is where I think, I don't think the Biden administration thought this through. I think this is an overreach in that part by adding that in there, mm-hmm. because now it's just not the big evil drug companies that we're tra- targeting, but it's all kinds of companies that may very well respond on this.
0: Yeah. Now, you know, it, here at the Institute for Policy Innovation, uh, we're not anarchists, but we do believe in limited government. We don't believe the government should be trying to control pricing at all. So, you know, we didn't like the fact that the that the Biden administration essentially enacted price controls on insulin. Mm-hmm. Said companies can't charge more than, I think, $35 a month or something like that. Um, but the argument against price controls, and you can if you can go to Dr. you can go to IPI's website at IPI.org, you can find several pieces that Dr. Matthews has written over the years on price controls. It's just basic economics that price controls are a disincentive to innovation, and they're a disincentive to production and distribution. Because if the government's going to come in and limit what you can charge, they're limiting your profits, and so they're limiting the amount of investment that investors are going to be willing to put in. And, of course, the ultimate example of this is those black and white photographs from the, from the Soviet Union where you had the housewives lined up around the block to get a loaf of bread. And the Soviet Union had had capped the price of bread to something like 25 cents a loaf, so it was very affordable. The problem is there was never any bread because nobody had an incentive to produce it or not to produce enough of it. So that's the whole thing sort of taken to its logical extreme. But even at the margins, we should not be enacting policies that are going to have an even marginal effect on discouraging uh, investment, R&D, in Possible life-saving drugs and pain-relieving drugs. And the fact of the matter is, in recent years, there have been incredible, incredible advances in the healthcare industry. Um, I've had reasons over the last few months to have a lot of interactions with healthcare industry. And I'm struck by how many surgical procedures and things like that are much easier to recover from and are much less invasive today than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And it's the same thing with the medications. There are better medications that are available. It wasn't that many years ago that we literally came up with a drug that cures hepatitis C. It, it doesn't just treat the symptoms. It cures the disease. Mm-hmm. Those drugs were very expensive when they first came out. Now, not so much because that's what happens when, it, when a drug is brand new. The essentially early adopters pay the most. And then over time... Uh, competitors come on the market and eventually the patent expires and you have generic versions. And most of the drugs that most people take are generic anyway.
1: And, you know, we need to make the point that just because there is a patent on a drug doesn't mean there's not competition. In many cases, there is competition uh, from other drug companies that are doing something similar, Mm -hmm. but they haven't necessarily infringed that patent. So you could have a lot of competition. And that's true in most cases.
0: Well, a decade or so ago, the perfect illustration of this was allergy medicines, right? Because you had a bunch of allergy medicines, I think singular and um, uh, Claritin and all these sorts of drugs, and they were all still under patent. And so the argument was that these drugs are too expensive because they're on patent. And people would say it's a monopoly. Well, there were four or five different drugs out there. Mm-hmm. They were all under patents, but they were all also competing with each other, right? And I think the most immediate example of this today that a lot of people are talking about are some of these remarkable new drugs that are designed to keep your A1C and blood sugar under control, but it turns out they help people lose weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wegovy and and some of those kinds of drugs. You've got two or three drugs by two or three different companies out there. They're competing with each other. They're all under patent, right. but they're all competing with each other. So it's not that you don't have competition. The thing about a patent is... You, Uh, somebody else is not allowed to copy exactly your product while it's under patent, but somebody's free to come up with another way of addressing the same problem Mm -hmm. or a similar way of addressing the same problem. So, you know, the idea that there's not enough competition is really hard to argue, especially going back with their own number that they cite when they talk about 25 different companies. In a way, it's kind of a remarkable thing that we have 25 big pharmaceutical companies to start with. And when
1: generics, you have even more. And actually, one of the problems with the drug shortages out there uh, that you have, is, especially in generics, but also in some brand-name drugs, is there's so much competition and, so, and price controls with Medicaid and other things that come in there, they can't make enough money. So some of those companies are actually dropping out. Teva Pharmaceuticals, one of the largest of the generic manufacturers, is having to scale back because it simply can't make enough money on many of its generic products.
0: Yeah, and, and in fact, most people mostly take generic drugs yeah i, I know that 90 percent of prescriptions yeah. out there i mean i take a handful of prescriptions every day every single one of them are generic and so i spend very little amount of money uh, per month on prescription drugs i know not everybody's as fortunate as that some but some people have conditions that require expensive drugs mm-hmm. some people have conditions that require one of the newer drugs that's still under patent uh but you know why not try to come up with something that targets those specific problems as opposed to just like an across the board accusation that these companies are price gouging and that it's corporate greed and all that sort of thing. You did a fun piece years ago when, uh, when the pharmaceutical companies were under attack because I think it was because of CEO compensation, yes. right? And, and you did a, you did a really with fun For,
1: p- fortune magazine, uh-huh. which put the, which, uh, use the profits and of the profits of the companies and the CEOs mm-hmm. salaries and so forth and and it turns out that a number companies, coca-cola and others, made it high, much higher profits this, this
0: was my recollection that the CEO Microsoft and some of those
1: were making much higher profits
0: uh-huh. so the corporate profits were higher than the prescription drug than the pharmaceutical industry mm-hmm. and the and the the uh, executive compensation was higher than the prescription drug industry yeah. but nobody cared about that no they cared about the prescription drug industry so maybe it's time to go back and refresh it <laughs> and see if that's still true. Um, it's just that the pharmaceutical industry just always seems to have a target on its back. And it's historically, it's been Democrats who did that, except for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Donald Trump also participated in sort of demonizing the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, and, you know, in, in some of the work that we've done in the past, we've talked about how it's not an unusual thing that a brand new drug is expensive. Uh, the brand new latest, you know, Intel chip. For your laptop, is also expensive, and it's why I've never bought a top-of-the-line laptop in in all my life. I always buy one that's using a second- or third-generation chip because it's less expensive. Now, you can say, well, that's not a fair comparison to drugs because it might be that you have to have that drug to live or whatever. But, again, the pattern here is it's not that unusual for a brand-new innovative product to be expensive, but the prices do tend to come down over time. And that doesn't, just, that doesn't just apply to, to, to uh, prescription drugs. It applies to really any kind of innovative technology.
1: And we, we shouldn't overlook the, the role of the government in making drugs expensive mm-hmm. because they require rebates in, through the Medicaid program. Then there's the supplemental rebate program. So drugs, if you want your drugs to be available in Medicaid, you have to pay the states a rebate off the price that they get. And if you want it on the preferred drug list, meaning the one that they're going to really push, you've got to pay a supplemental rebate on the, that. So the, the government actually plays a role in driving up these prices and then turns around and complains about the prices being higher.
0: Exactly. There, there's, another, there's another sort of irony here. It's at least ironic. In fact, um, the episode our podcast episode for Monday is going to be about the failures of Obamacare. hmm so as I'm going through this document, reading about how the Biden administration is complaining about how awful the health the care industry is. That is Obamacare. I, that's my point. Well, wait a minute. I thought Obamacare was going to solve all these problems. It going to fix this problem for us. I mean, we, you know, we have the health care system that the Obama-Biden administration intended for us to have, surely. You know, um, there were there were areas of Obamacare that addressed the cost of prescription drugs. Yes. Uh, there were areas of Obamacare that addressed this issue of, like, privately owned hospitals and medical practices. A lot of these companies adjusted their business models to fit Obamacare and ended up consolidating. Which is another
1: problem from the Obama administ- from the uh, Biden administration. They're complaining about the consolidation that's going on in the healthcare industry. It was going on to a small extent before Obamacare passed. But it, exas- it was greatly exacerbated by Obamacare.
0: Literally, the second page of this document says consolidation in healthcare markets has accelerated in recent decades, too often leading to higher costs, worse quality, and less access to- access to care. And this is a result of Obamacare. It may not have been an intended result of Obamacare.
1: Yeah, and I don't, I don't actually believe that the consolidation leads to all those problems. Right, that right. It's saying, but
0: it's their assertion. But it's there. It, it's just kind of comical to me that you know we we healthcare system that you are panning in this document is Obamacare. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And, you know, thought that was going to be the solution. All right, so let's talk for a minute about sort of why this policy, if successful, has negative consequences for, you know, future healthcare and all that sort of thing. and And it's all related to this idea of if you make innovation more costly, if you make innovation more risky, then you're going to get less innovation. It's just simply a matter of incentives. And so if you're, if you're going to say to somebody, uh, you can dedicate the next 12 years of your life to developing this product. Uh, you can file the patents, You can pay thousands of dollars to patent attorneys to file the patents. You can do all of that work. And by golly, if it turns out that it's successful, Uh, Joe Biden can come marching in Mm -hmm. and take your patent away from you. Now, if you know that going in, if if, if they spring that on you now, you didn't know that was going to happen, but imagine the next generation of innovators and researchers, right? Why? Why do it? If if, if you're successful and the government can just come in and take your patent away from you. Mm -hmm. The point is it will have at least a marginal impact on the willingness of people to take risks, to invest money, to invest time, to invest their careers if they can't be certain of the solidity of the patent, of the reliability of the patent. The patent is the one thing you have. As an inventor, the patent is the one security that you have. If you ever watch a show like Shark Tank or something like that, it's one of the first things they want to know is you have a patent. Yeah. If they're going to invest, they want to know if you have a patent or not.
1: And I'll add this one other thing because when we talk about Joe Biden and the administration coming in and taking a patent, it's not like it's just a group of HHS people, Health and Human Services, looking around saying, ah, oh, we think this may be too high. There will be lobbying groups, oh, yeah. special interest groups. Uh, HIV, let, I'll just pick some names just as, a, as an example. Let's say HIV could be cancer, could be heart. If they see something, a, a drug is being developed over this uh, at this university or whatever, and they're going to try to uh, move this to market, and you have special interest groups who come in and will go to the administration and say, "You need to make sure that that is a really cheap drug so that we can get it." Absolutely. And so you have—it's not just the the government looking at this. There will be special interest groups pressuring the government to go in and get that to march in. So there will be not just those who say. Don't come and march in. There will be those who absolutely
0: pressure the government to march in. In fact, it's quote-unquote special interest who have pushed the Biden administration to do this in the first place. Exactly. I mean, you know, we at IPI have been working in this space for decades. And, you know, we know some of the people who have been pushing for march-in rights for decades and have been very frustrated that administrations have not been willing to use them. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason administrations have not been willing to use them are all the reasons we've been talking about on this podcast, and, and, and it was never part of the admin, uh, the yeah. legislation anyway. This is right. This is something where they're
1: having to impose march-in rights for the uh, for prices. Not it's not something that was ever considered as right something because that because was,
0: those administrations were actually looking at the letter of the law, right. and they were saying no matter how much we would like to do this, the the language in the statute just doesn't give us the right to do that. Right. And so what they're trying, what, again, what their Biden administration is trying to do here is essentially redefine terms and assume things that are simply not in the legislation. And, you know, it, it's, it's another example of this trend of a, of a president saying, if Congress doesn't act, I will. You know, you could change the Baiduil legislation. Yes. Congress could change it. Yep, absolutely. They could expand marching rights. If Introduce they
1: legislation and see if it passes.
0: Right. But short of that, the, uh, the executive branch should not have the right to essentially rewrite legislation so that it can accomplish what it wants to accomplish. So we at IPI will continue to watch this margin Rights issue. Uh, This topic might not be of interest to everybody, uh, but it ought to be, because while it's very obscure at this point, uh, 10 or 15 years down the road, we could be looking at a situation where government is aggressively using these rights, and the rate of innovation and the rate of research and development has really gone down as a result. Well, thanks for joining us today on this podcast episode. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org and sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of all of our upcoming podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next time.